Well, in the fall of 1620, the Mayflower set sail for Virginia with 102 passengers on board. And on December 16th, they landed in Massachusetts, which was actually far north of their intended destination. And it was happening just as the winter was beginning to set in in the Northeast. And this northern climate, as you well know, was much harsher than the anticipated Virginia. And the settlers were unprepared for the cold season that was ahead. Winter brought with it rampant sickness and bitter temperatures. Shelter was very rudimentary in those days. Food was scarce. People lay dying. And that winter, all but three families dug graves in the hard New England soil to bury a husband, a wife, a child, or multiple children. By the spring of 1621, half of the pilgrims had died from disease and starvation. No one was untouched by tragedy. And yet in the midst of all these monumental losses, they chose to give thanks. They saw in Scripture that the Israelites had thanked God in their circumstances. And so even before provision came, even before deliverance came... Just as the Israelites were instructed to give thanks, so the pilgrims, like the Israelites of old, chose to be grateful. Grateful for what they had, rather than focus on all that they had lost. Now I know that that's not typically the way the Thanksgiving story is told. But the Thanksgiving story occurs in the midst of a backdrop of grief, sadness, trial, death. It's in that environment that thanksgiving was given. They had to look for blessings. They had to actively and deliberately cultivate gratitude. Their thanksgiving was obviously not based on pleasant circumstances, but rather on the understanding that God was to be thanked whether they were met with adversity or prosperity. Their gratitude was not some sort of positive thinking facade but a deep and steadfast trust that God was guiding all their circumstances even when life was very difficult. And viewing their lives through the disciplined lens of gratitude changed their perspective. Perhaps many of you, even as we come up on Thanksgiving this Thursday, have been thinking, really? So fast. How did it get here? And yet... If we look back over our year or two years or even week or month, how often can we think that there aren't really any reasons to be grateful or we can feel like the trials have been far more heavy than the blessings? But I want to reassure you, brothers and sisters, this morning that that is absolutely never the case. It's never the case as the people of God that our trials are greater than our blessings. In fact, when we have a father who intends our trials for our blessing and works blessing in and through our trials. So this morning, I want us to have a change of perspective similar to what the pilgrims of old had as it relates to the subject of thankfulness. And for that perspective, we'll consider 
the account that Luke records for us of Jesus and his interaction with the ten lepers in Luke 17, verses 11 through 19. We're just going to walk through the passage this morning. I've got five observations I want to make, and then we will draw some lessons along the way. First, I want you to notice the desperate request that occurs in verses 11 through 13 where we read again, on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, and as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voice, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So much like the pilgrims that we just read about, the ten lepers mentioned here in Luke 17 were afflicted in every way. The background of Jesus' interaction with these lepers is very much informed by the Levitical code about how to treat lepers in Leviticus 13 and 14, which we don't have time to go back to. But just so you know the general instructions there for how to deal with lepers in the community, especially the covenant community, um, Leviticus 13 and 14, God gives instructions about Um, various types of skin diseases and how those were to be handled within the context of Israel at that time. And in Leviticus 13, we find some very long and detailed and painfully excruciating detail of skin disease, all the way from eczema to what we would call Hansen's disease today, which is modern leprosy. And what one is supposed to do to determine whether one has a skin disease that excludes us from the camp of Israel or which is allowed, and then what to do with that disease does exclude us from the camp. And then in Leviticus 14, we get an explanation of what the priests are to do in order to restore someone to fellowship with the people of Israel who has been cured of one of these skin diseases. And that's informing how Jesus is interacting with these lepers here in Luke 17. Now, to capture something of the desperation that these ten men felt. I want to go into a little bit of background regarding these types of diseases without turning our stomachs too badly. You know, in 2005, along with uh, our former pastor, Jonathan Christman, I had the, the, I think it was a joy, it was a real experience. It was definitely a joy looking back on it. It was difficult at the time, but to go visit a leper colony in North India and to see people that had no hands and no legs and no um, large parts of their body missing and their faces being disfigured and no eyes and things like that and seeing the ways in which leprosy and Hansen's disease can ravage a particular person's life and body and experience. And it was a joy to be able to share something of this story with them and preach the gospel to them. Now, these diseases are caused by bacteria that attack the nerves and the skin. These bacteria anesthetize or numb the body and the limbs so that feeling is lost. The nerve endings have been damaged and severed and no feeling is gained. And then there's, of course, the potential for serious injury because, as you know, what we can't feel can do great damage to us. It starts, we're told, with a pink patch or a white patch of skin that's usually on the brow or the nose or the ear or the cheek, the chin, the head, somewhere in that region. And then that patch begins to spread out in all sorts of directions, and a portion of the eyebrows begins to disappear. Spongy, tumorous swellings begin to grow, first of all, all over the face, and then they begin to descend all over the body. 
as the disease becomes systemic throughout the entire body. Fingers and toes can then be absorbed into the body as the bacteria invades the bone marrow, which impairs the, bone su- the blood supply, which causes the bones to shrivel and the rest of the body to shrivel as well. And with the accompanying loss of feeling in the body due to nerve disease, the victim can then destroy their own tissue because they have no feeling. The bacteria can destroy the eye, causing blindness. It can penetrate the teeth so that they fall out. It can infect all the bodily organs. It can affect the larynx so that one winds up with a weak, raspy voice or no voice at all. And then if you think about just the monumental physical suffering that is entailed in something like these men were experiencing, you add on that and compound on that the social stigma that comes with it as well, which only compounds the misery that they're experiencing. If shared sorrow halves the sorrow, then a condition like this doubles the sorrow because it removes any possibility of relational comfort because of social isolation that is required. If it's discovered that you have leprosy in Israel, you were then removed from all social contact and the only people you could ever associate with were other lepers. I mean, we've experienced something of what social isolation does to our mental, emotional, relational states as a result of our, the pandemic we've been dealing with, but nothing at the level of this, where literally you were cut off from those you needed most. The people you needed most, the family, the loving friends, you couldn't even come near. The only people you could associate with were other lepers who couldn't serve as a source of comfort for you since they joined in your misery. You couldn't associate with people in the synagogue or any social environment whatsoever. You were an alien from all of life and left only with others in your horrific misery. And then on top of that, on top of untold physical suffering and social and emotional isolation, you had to be the bearer of bad news for yourself everywhere you went. It was put on you to call out no matter where you were, Unclean! Unclean! Not someone else identifying you as such, but you were required to designate that. How difficult it must have been to be the prophet of your own unworthiness. The herald of your own uncleanness before God and others. Reminding yourself over and over And over again, having this consciousness everywhere you went, it is my responsibility to inform people that I am unclean. And how that would impact your psychological well-being, how that would impact your own view of your identity and who you were. So these ten men were among the most miserable of all people, believing they had been cursed by God and cursed by men as well. So can you get something of their desperation here? Something of the fact that they stood at a distance because that was what was required. They dare not get close to anyone. Lifting up their voices, loudly shouting to Jesus in hopes that somehow he might have mercy on them. That's the desperate request. Secondly, 
a merciful reply. Notice verse 14. When he saw them, he said to them, so notice Jesus turns his gaze to them when he hears their voice or sees them off in a distance, and he says to them, perhaps lifting his own voice, because they were no doubt at a distance from him, go and show yourself to the priests. And they went, and as they went, they were cleansed. Now, Jesus tells them something very unusual. He gives them instructions that are supposed to come after the cleansing, not before the cleansing. This would have struck them as a very strange request. Because Jesus tells them, go, show yourself to the priest, knowing that they can't do that. They can't just get up and go to the priests, because Leviticus 14 says that they are to go to the priests after they have been cleansed. But Jesus instructs them to go now, even though they are not yet cleansed. And Luke makes clear here that it's as they were going that they were cleansed. Either they turned around and started walking away, or they had walked away at some distance, but all of a sudden, they were cleansed. Now, they knew something of Jesus' power and authority already, otherwise they wouldn't have asked him to have mercy on them. They knew that Jesus could do something about the skin disease that they had. They knew Jesus could do something about this physical and emotional and social and psychological isolation and impact this disease was having in their body. So they had some kind of faith in Jesus. They looked at Jesus and they said, Have mercy on me. They called him Master. They believed at some level that Jesus was able to have mercy on them, and Jesus did have mercy on them. As they were going, Luke tells us they were cleansed. Think about it. It was sheer mercy that Jesus did that. They didn't deserve it. There wasn't, they weren't relying on any sort of... Uh, they didn't... They didn't prophesy their distress to Jesus and say, Jesus, oh, you know how bad we've got it. You know how bad we got it. Will you do something about this? They just are almost like at the end of their rope, just crying out, Jesus, have mercy on us. And he does, because Jesus is merciful. Jesus looks at people who are in distress of all kinds and has mercy on us. We are all here this morning because Jesus looked to us in our distress and had mercy on us. Thirdly, I want you to notice in verses 15 and 16 an eager return. An eager return. Verse 15, Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Now this one leper that had returned models for us that true gratitude and its essence consist not so much in being grateful for the gift that you've received, but the giver who gave you the gift. In fact, gratitude for the gift is natural. All ten lepers received the mercy of Jesus in the gift of healing, but only one returned to give him thanks. Ten were healed, one was saved. Which is the deepest 
and most necessary healing of all. Gratitude for the giver, not just the gift, is what separates the believing from the unbelieving. Many Thanksgiving celebrations this week will express real and genuine gratitude for the gift. And yet will be horrifically offensive to God because it will ignore the giver altogether. Gratitude that has nothing to do with God is not gratitude. Even when it's offered to him in some trite, ambiguous, once-a-year kind of way, it has little, if any, regard beyond his gifts. It's not gratitude. No affection, no allegiance, no gratitude. John Piper writes that God is not glorified if the foundation of our gratitude is the worth of the gift and not the excellency of the giver. If gratitude is not rooted in the beauty of God before the gift, it's probably disguised idolatry. Now test yourself here, brothers and sisters. As you give thanks, not just this week, but I trust regularly considering it's a biblical command, Ask where your deepest affection and appreciation lie. We should be thankful for the gifts. Absolutely we should. I mean, no parent delights in giving, or grandparent for that matter, delights in giving their child a gift for their birthday or their, or their Christmas or whatever, only to have the child completely disregard the gift and kind of throw it to the side, stomp on it, or not even play with it and say, you know, I really, yeah, I wish you wouldn't have got me the gift because I just love you. Well, it's like, no, the, the gift was an expression of my love for you. I want you to enjoy the gift, okay? But it's, all, it's altogether different when a parent or grandparent gives someone a gift and they just blow out of the room like they just won the lottery, like one of the nine lepers, and the parents have to go in there, hey, will you go in there and say thank you? Will you go give your grandmother a hug? Right? So that's the kind of gratitude I'm talking about there. It's gratitude that, yes, appreciates the gift, but more than that, has affection for the giver. So let's test ourselves, brothers and sisters. Is God the greatest gift you've received this past year? Or is it your family, your spouse, your children, your children's children, or your career? The one you have, the one you want, or the one you had? Or is it comfort, the size of your bank account, or the condition of your home, technology in your pocket? With our gratitude, brothers and sisters, let's keep the gifts as gifts, and let's keep God as God. Be specific with your gratitude. God wants to hear it. Child, home, food, phone, whatever. But also be personal with your gratitude. Follow every gift back to the fountain, to God himself, and let him be the reason to fall further in love with, with uh, in appreciation for the gifts and in love with the giver. See, because experiencing God's blessings is not merely getting good things from God. The essence of blessing is receiving from God so that we might turn that into more of God more enjoyment of God, more affection for God, more gratitude to God, more allegiance to God. 
Now I want you to notice how this Samaritan leper responded. He praised God, and it's told, we're, we're told here, with a loud voice. So this is not the first time we've heard loud voices, right? The ten lepers initially had loud voices as they cried out from some distance to Jesus. But he not only proclaimed with a loud voice what he used to shout as unclean, unclean. He's used to shouting. He's used to proclaiming things in a loud voice. But in this time, he doesn't use it to ward off incoming neighbors who might need to be warned, but to praise God for the mercy that he has received. This leper, this Samaritan leper, had a lot of practice with shouting things in a loud voice. And now, because of Jesus' mercy to him, he returns to Jesus and shouts to Jesus in a loud voice. And notice he does so in a way that's spontaneous and... It's almost as if he's over, so overcome with gratitude, he disregards everything that would be culturally appropriate for that time. You don't just, when you're cleansed, you've got to wait a little while. You don't just run to a rabbi and fall at his feet and get close to him like that. But he can't help himself because he recognizes with great thankfulness that Jesus was the one who did this for him. And Jesus is the one who deserves his affection. That Jesus is the one who deserves his praise. That Jesus is the one he must fall on his face before with thanksgiving. And this teaches us something again about the nature of gratitude, doesn't it? Thanksgiving includes thanks feeling. A thankful mouth without a thankful heart doesn't count with God. God is glorified when we feel thankfulness, not just when we say thank you. Now, this reminds us of something, doesn't it? That the Christian life is more than just doing the right thing. All right? I mean, you would think that people who recognize their desperation, that they're sick and they need a Savior, and they cry out, and they have, Jesus, have mercy on us, you think, Christian, this parable teaches us, and this story teaches us otherwise. People can cry out for mercy to God for all kinds of reasons that have nothing to do with God. They want an alleviation of circumstance. They don't want God. They want God's blessings. They don't want God. They want their pain to go away. They don't want God. That's manifested by the react that if God doesn't grant it, they don't want to have anything to do with God. So that's their God, not God. God does not like to be prostituted like that. He will not be your whore. Where we go to Him and say, Genie, give me what I want. God does not play those games. So brothers and sisters, the Christian life is more than just feeling desperate. The Christian life is more than just feeling like we got to cry out to Jesus. The Christian life is more than just asking Jesus to have mercy on us. It is if he does or if he doesn't, I will praise him. I will thank him. I will fall on my face before him. I will offer my life to him. See, we don't need the Holy Spirit to live a moral life. You need the Holy Spirit to live a supernatural life. The moral life is not the goal. We don't need the Spirit to be different on the outside. We need the Spirit to be different on the inside. 
We don't need the Spirit to obey God, but we do need the Spirit to enjoy obeying God. There is a kind of obedience that is not Christian. It's to avoid suffering. It's because I've always done it this way. But your heart, deep down, doesn't enjoy it, doesn't delight in it, doesn't want it. Now, there's always a fight in the Christian life for obedience. It's never easy. But deep down at the root, the reason that Christians obey is because we want to obey. That's the only kind of obedience that's genuine. And that's because the Spirit produces that kind of obedience. Authentic heart feelings are not in our control. We can't make ourselves feel thankful. (laughs) And if our hearts are not moved by God's goodness... We are ungrateful. And thanks feelings then are a work of grace. Thanksgiving may not be, but thanks feeling is a work of God's grace. So we see, wow, my sin goes deeper than I thought. My need for Jesus goes deeper than I thought, and that's good. This whole point is to help us understand that to become a genuine Christian is to fall on our face before Jesus in experiential gratitude. And that can be produced by the Spirit alone. Nine went away. One came back. Nine went away healed. One came back saved. Nine went away thrilled that they had received mercy. No doubt, thinking of Jesus in their minds but not feeling gratitude for Jesus in their hearts. Fourth, we see a surprised response from Jesus in verses 17 and 18. Notice what Jesus says. No doubt knowing that this one leper who did come back shouldn't have. The Samaritans, those were who the Jews thought were ungrateful. They just take advantage We've done so much good for them, and they just walk all over it. We let them live around our city. We let them even come into our city from time to time. We do commerce with them. They don't show any gratitude. They just take, 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 take. And Jesus turns it around on them. He says, who's the only one who came back here? The foreigner. None of God's covenant people, Israel, were among that group. No, it was the foreigner who came back. None of the Jews did, assuming that the other nine lepers were Israelites. But Jesus is surprised. He says, we're not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? See, Romans one twenty one says, people naturally refuse to glorify God and give Him thanks. Oz Guinness says that rebellion against God doesn't begin with the clenched fist of atheism, but with the satisfied heart of one for whom thank you is redundant. All ten were cleansed, and yet only one returned. Brothers and sisters, do we frequently find ourselves among the nine or among the one? Do we find ourselves taking advantage of God's gifts, forgetting to return and give Him thanks? Or do we find ourselves among the one who remember to return and give Him thanks? Thanks. Surely, 
We've all been in both camps. We've been among those who have taken God's blessings and gifts for granted, like the nine, and the one who has returned with gratitude, like the Samaritan. But I'm asking you, what's the pattern in your life these days? Do you frequently return to Jesus with grateful praise? Do you have any reason to? Acts 17.25, He gives to all men life and breath and everything. Got any reason to be grateful this morning? (laughs) If He gives it to all people, life and breath and everything, that covers a lot of ground, doesn't it? I think that covers life and breath and everything. Meaning that life and breath and everything come mercifully from our God. Every single thing you receive, according to James 1.17, is an undeserved gift from a very good Father. Where is any entitlement in this? Have thoughts of entitlement or familiarity or indifference crept in to diminish or color your gratitude? All of us, I imagine, got sick this past year. And almost all of us got better. Have we given thanks? If we are getting sicker, maybe even approaching death, have we given thanks for the grace to make it this far and for the grace that will lead us home? There is so much God has done for us, brothers and sisters. Jobs, paid our bills, paying our bills at church, safe travel, safe surgeries, miraculous provision of little babies, We've had good test results, open doors, unexpected blessings. Did you sleep last night? Did your kids? Will you eat tomorrow or today? Have you seen people recently converted? Are your relationships, or at least some of them, in the process of being healed? Did you sell your house, or did you get married, or did you finish school? Have you enjoyed the encouragement and support of the church? Have you enjoyed laughter and sympathy with friends? We've known guilt this year. We've received abundant grace. Will we live out gratitude? You know, there's not much that it takes to become a thankless person. Let me give you a few ways to become a thankless person. Just don't think about what God has done. Psalm 75, 1, we give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. If you don't do that, you won't be thankful. Also, don't think about other Christians and don't think about the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, 4 to 8, which, by the way, is a far more messed up church than any of, any of our church is, <laughs> for the Corinthian church. Paul says at the beginning of that letter, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given in Christ Jesus to you. When he thought about the body of Christ, when he thought about the church, even a church as broken as the Corinthian church and sinful as the Corinthian church, he gave thanks. Not only that, don't think about what God has done. Don't think about other Christians in the body of Christ. Don't think about God's character. Psalm 106, praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord and who can declare his praise? Don't think about that if you don't want to be thankful. 
Also, don't think about God's provision. Psalm 146, verses 14 and 15. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. Also, don't read the Bible. Psalm 100, verse 3. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Also, don't think about your salvation. Psalm 107, verses 8 and 9. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man, for He satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul He fills with good things. Also, don't you dare think about the gospel. Psalm, because you might get this kind of attitude. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. See, brothers and sisters, the spiritual cost to us of being thankless is much higher than we think. Thanklessness is not merely the absence of verbalizing a thank you. It's a symptom of spiritual deadness, dullness, and poverty. Because it's taking for granted and not appreciating grace being shown to us. And that will not work well on your heart. God does not command and exhort us to thank him because he needs it. He exhorts us to thank him and praise him because we need it. He doesn't just love to hear the magic words, thank you, and it gives him a little goosebumps. Oh, I'm so happy somebody's thankful for me. He doesn't want us to watch us perform a mere divine courtesy. He's after our spiritual health. He's after our blessing. He's after our joy. He does not want us to be spiritually sick and spiritually poor, so he commands us to be grateful. He doesn't need our expression of gratitude. We do. We might be tempted to think that thanklessness is sort of like a luxury option on a car of the Christian faith, like it's a nice feature, but it's not essential. Brothers and sisters, thankfulness is not a luxury option. It's the engine in the car. It's a key part of the engine. The car will not run effectively without it. Which is why gratitude is commanded so often in Scripture and why we need it to practice it so often in Scripture. Fifthly and finally, a hopeful result comes as Jesus turns to the Samaritan leper in verse 19 and he says to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. So wait, didn't the lepers have faith? All of them? I mean, they all looked at Jesus and said, Jesus, I know who you are. Jesus, I know you can do something about this. I mean, that takes some faith. That takes some trust. But that's not faith to Jesus. In some strange understanding, he looks at that and he says, all right, that's natural. That's natural. To want to be out of hard circumstances, that's natural. To cry out to me to deliver you from that circumstance, that's natural. That's natural. What's supernatural is when I do deliver you, you can't get over me. You can't get over me. You love me. That's what he says is faith. Your faith has saved you. That's faith. So what is faith? Faith is yes, 
crying out to God in deliverance. Faith is, yes, crying out to God for mercy. Faith is, yes, seeing and sensing your own desperation for God, from God. Yes, faith is turning to Jesus and crying out to him and looking to him to save you. But it's also when he does, you stick to him. That's faith. You can't get a Christian away from Jesus. Even if you tried. Even if you surrounded his life with affliction or her life with prosperity. You can't get them to not center their lives on Christ. He's their praise. He's the object of their love. He's the sun in the center of their solar system. Now, interestingly, your faith has saved you. This phrase that Jesus uses occurs four times in Luke's gospel. And it's never used for a Pharisee or Jewish leaders. It's always used for an outcast. A sinful woman in chapter 7. A bleeding woman in chapter 8. A Samaritan here in chapter 17. And a blind beggar in chapter 18. Because this phrase, your faith has saved you, Jesus reserves for sinners and outsiders, for the unclean and the needy, for to such belong the kingdom of God. See, faith was the means to the healing of the Samaritan leper, and we learn what true faith consists of. It's responding to Jesus with love and gratitude for what he has done for us. But how does faith in Jesus, believing his word, responding in obedience, how does that cleanse the leper? I mean, why is it faith that does it? Why doesn't he just say, all right, I'm merciful. Here. He says, your faith has saved you, made you well. Very interesting. It's because the God-man, Jesus Christ, lived a perfect life of appreciation on our behalf toward the Father and died to forgive our failure to give God the thanks he so richly did. God himself, in the person of his son, Jesus, entered into our thankless world, lived a flawless life of, of appreciation to his father, and died on our behalf for our chronic ingratitude. It is Jesus, the God-man, who has manifested the perfect life of thankfulness. Jesus lived the life of gratitude we failed to live. Matthew eleven twenty twenty five, 25, in the context of those unthankful and unrepentant cities where he had done many mighty works, Jesus lifts up his voice to the Father and says, I thank you, Father. I thank you, Father. I'm surrounded by wicked cities that you have done nothing but bless, blessing for. They are part of the Acts 17, all men, you've given them life and breath and everything, and yet they are part of the Romans 121. They failed to give God and refused to give him thanks. And he steps up in the midst of that in gratitude and says, I thank you, Father. As our representative, as our Savior, John eleven forty one. 41, they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes when he was getting ready to deliver Lazarus and said, I thank you that you have heard me. Jesus' thanksgiving reverses our death and turns it into life. Because our unthankfulness put us in the grave and to begin with. That's what happened in the beginning, in the garden. Ingratitude. God is not sufficient. His gifts aren't sufficient. I want more. And Jesus gives thanks in our place and reverses the effects of death. And Jesus not only gave thanks there, but in Matthew 15, he took the seven loaves and fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. Jesus not only was God himself, but he's the quintessentially thankful human, and he did it for us.
See, the first time Jesus healed a leper in the Gospel of Luke, it was in Luke chapter 5, verses 12 to 14. And there, Jesus actually reaches out and touches the leper. He doesn't do that here in chapter 17. But Jesus reaches out in Luke 5, touches the leper, and makes him clean. And this would, of course, have caused a great deal of commotion among the Israelites because they are watching a clean man touch an unclean man. And when that happens, that clean man becomes unclean. But this clean man is a different kind of clean man because when he touches unclean people, he doesn't become unclean. They become clean. And so Luke is telling us that Jesus not only was not only not defiled by his contact with sinners, but his contact with sinners heals sinners. Because of his holiness, because of his purity, because he's the Savior, the Messiah, the Son of God, he's not defiled by us. He cleanses us. And that's because he's living in our place. He not only lived in our place, he died in our place, bearing God's curse for our sins, including the sin of ingratitude. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus encounters another leper, and he makes that leper clean, but it's in a way that might surprise you. Here's another man with leprosy, and Jesus makes him clean. But then something curious happens. Jesus instructs that former leper not to tell anybody about this miraculous healing. Now, why? Why, would Jesus, why did Jesus do that over and over in the Gospels? Don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. Because Jesus knows that if someone starts publicizing what he's doing, the miracles will become a distraction. And worse, they will get the wrong people's attention at the wrong time. The Jewish leaders will notice him even more than they already are, and they'll get jealous even more than they already are, and everyone will be confused even more than they already are about who Jesus is. Now, nevertheless, he heals the leper, ignoring the exhortation. The man goes out and starts telling everybody. And sure enough, the crowds hear about it, people start flocking to Jesus, and he can no longer openly enter a town. Just like he thought, the miracle has become a distraction, a diversion, and possibly a danger. You know what happened? Jesus healed this leper in Mark chapter 1, who was an outcast. And as a result, Jesus became an outcast. He gave his life for that leper. By bringing that leper in, he was getting ready to be cast out because it would be through those events that he would be put out to not be able to enter towns. And ultimately on the cross, he would trade places with that leper and he would cry out for him and for us to the Father, unclean, unclean, so that we might be pronounced by the Father, clean, clean. Luke 22, he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is broken for you, and this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Wasn't it Satan's temptation in the beginning to take and eat that got us in this mess to begin with? And it's Jesus' command that we take and eat that gets us out of this mess. It's Jesus take and eat of his body broken for us and his blood poured out for us that reverses the curse that Adam and Eve brought into the world through their taking and eating. And so, brothers and sisters, being recipients of the grace of Jesus, we're transformed into thankful people. This is why 
Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus and just for the trifecta, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Could he make it any more clear? Give thanks, give thanks, give thanks. Be thankful. I know, but what about the hard things? How do I give thanks in the midst of difficult circumstances? Well, you do remember that before Jesus gave the bread and before Jesus gave the cup that symbolized his blood, what did he do? He gave thanks. He gave thanks before the suffering. He gave thanks before the cup was drunk in its fullness. He gave thanks before his body like bread was broken. He said, thank you, thank you, Father, that my body symbolized by this bread is about to be brutally broken and I'm about to be momentarily damned by your wrath. Thank you, Father. How was he able to do that? Hebrews 12, 2 tells us, for the joy set before him for the joy set before him. Which is why he began his prayer in John 17. Father, I can't wait to have the glory I enjoyed with you restored to me soon. It was the joy that was set before him. And brothers and sisters, it's the same way for us. How do we get through hard, challenging circumstances with gratitude? The joy set before us because of what Jesus accomplished for us. Perhaps you're not looking forward to Thursday. You've had a hard year, many troubles, setbacks, fears, challenges. Follow Jesus into thanksgiving. Look into the future and let it fill you with joy and let it resurrect gratitude in the midst of all the hardships you are experiencing. You have the very best future possible if you would dare to believe it. And that future includes the free gift of complete forgiveness for all your sins extending into forever, never having to earn your justification by keeping the law, having all your real needs provided for by God on this earth, receiving all the grace you need at all times so that you'll abound in every good work God has for you, having the good work that God began in you completed, being raised from the dead never to die again, someday seeing Jesus and being with him and being like him, knowing for the first time full, undiluted, unpolluted joy, being completely free from all corruption, having God forever as your exceeding joy. And that's just a small sampling. The joy set before you is the same joy Jesus had set before him because you are an heir of the kingdom with him. So now, can you give thanks in all circumstances? I hope so. There's only one way, Jesus' way. We look to the future joy set before us. And if the future joy Jesus promises is real and you believe it, and you believe him, there is no circumstance that can steal your gratitude. May God allow us to know something of that this week and every day of our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the multitude of reasons we have to say thank you. Thank you for the mercy that you have shown us in our sin. We had a far worse predicament that we were in than a mere skin disease we had a far worse form of 
suffering that awaited us than just the death without limbs. We had a far worse, um, without hope feeling than even these lepers had. And yet when we cried out to you, you had mercy on us. And thank you for extending to us such undeserved, rich, and lavish favor. Thank you for giving us life and breath and everything. And as if that weren't enough, you gave us yourself. Help us, Lord, to have genuine, heartfelt thankfulness and gratitude for you. For all that you have done, all that you are doing, and all that you will do for us as your people. And if any of us this morning, are, our sin has been revealed as those outside of Christ that we have been unthankful and we are deserving of your rich judgment because of that, help them not to despair. But help our friends look to the thankful one. Look to the one who lived a life of thankfulness in their place. That if they will turn from their ingratitude and turn from their sin to this Savior, that he will fully and freely forgive them and have mercy on them. And they too can know what it means to have Jesus say to them, your faith has made you well. We pray all this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.